Hello there, my name is Noah, and I'm here alongside my co-hosts M. Hey. And Rob. Hey there. We are the hosts of Fax Machine, a podcast by and for people who are curious about everything, but especially the things that make them laugh. To our profound and everlasting joy, we are joined in this episode by Dr. Andrea Jones-Roy. All right. That is the warmest <laughs> pandemic welcome that exists. So thank you very well, you much. Don't, you don't want it to be too warm. This wasn't no. a feverish welcome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. This, is, this isn't hot spot welcome. Yeah. <laughs> we do, all, of course, have to say, because we our audio probably sounds so good. It sounds like we're all in the same room, but we definitely are not. This is Zoom recorded, uh, socially distanced. Um, so nobody out there has to be concerned for our safety. Yes. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. We're so excited that you're here. Thank you for having me. So for our listeners who don't already know you, I just want to go down the list of the many things that are astoundingly cool about you. Um, you are a data science professor at NYU and, in fact, the director of undergraduate studies at the NYU Center for Data Science, a comedian of both the standing up and improvisational varieties, and also a worldwide circus performer. <laughs> Um, and I think the question the three of us are dying to ask is, how? How, <laughs> how, have, you, how I have you I thought you were going to say why, but okay, great. Yeah. No, no, that's immediately clear. Those are amazing yeah. things. Anybody who can combine them all, it's self-evident. But how did you achieve all these incredible things? Please teach us. Yes, yes. The secret is um, make a series of terrible decisions and then grapple with that decision by moving into a totally unrelated field. And I think <laughs> like all three fields are great, <laughs> but they all have profound miseries associated, right? Like you're all in science and you get that it can be rough. It's wonderful, but it can be pretty soul crushing. And so mm -hmm. I go to circus, which makes me feel better about like life and it's fun, but it's so physically painful that you're like, feel like you're going to die. And then comedy <laughs> is really fun because you can just say whatever is on your mind, but then sometimes audiences really hate that. And you question your entire worth as a human. And so then you're like, you know what I'm going to do? Science. And you go back around. <laughs> and that is what happens. So instead of therapy, you can just do, or honestly, in, in addition to, I'm very busy. So in therapy, mostly. <laughs> in therapy. You're busy with therapy. I'm mostly. so busy with therapy right now. And I really wish I was exaggerating. <laughs> yeah. I feel like there are some people who take the, the kind of physicality of circus and like the, the brutal honesty of comedy and they just become CrossFit instructors and that's I think like that's a right. twofer. Yeah. yeah. I could have saved myself a lot of time and money by just doing CrossFit uh, instead of all this. Yeah. Fewer tips, I think, in CrossFit compared to comedy where we used to pass around a beer bucket. So that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I honestly fair. thought you were you meant by tips unsolicited advice, oh. but possi possibly as well. Plenty of that in CrossFit. <laughs> yeah. I'd have to there, imagine. Yeah. There's a lot of unsolicited <laughs> advice in comedy. That's true. My best advice I ever got was some guy after a show uh, came up to me and he said, you know, you're you're a very funny person, and I said, "Oh well, thank you." And he said, "But your jokes are not good." <laughs> what are you referring to in the former part? <laughs> and then he tried to convert me to Scientology. It was one of the highlights of my uh, career. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah, huh. so I'm a member. I don't know if that was what you wanted me to start talking about now or <laughs> yeah, later. Sure. Yeah, cool. Yeah, and this, I uh, just want to jump in to say this podcast is sponsored by Dianetics. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, th- that's amazing. And we are, I mean, if I haven't said it enough, very, very excited that you're here. And so in every episode of Facts Machine, each of us shares one fascinating fact along with the incredible story behind it. And finally, we wrap things up with a pub-style trivia quiz loosely inspired by the theme. This week, our theme is language, the extraordinary way we communicate and fail to communicate with each other. Em, take it away. This week, I learned that you won't get a curse from the Witch of Agnesi, but you can get a curve. That's because the Witch of Agnesi is no witch at all, but rather a cubic plane curve described by an equation named after 18th century mathematician Maria Gaetana Agnesi. So to preface... Going in, I was a little unsure as to whether our theme would be more languagey or mathy for reasons that you will see over the course of everyone else's facts. So <laughs> mine is maybe like 80% mathy and 20% languagey, but is also very thoroughly silly. So I'm hoping that that'll, that'll kind of buffer. <laughs> and you're using a lot of language to describe this. So uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. We said that, you know, math is the universal language. So exactly. it's still very much, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The universal language and my innate wordiness, I think, will also supply our (laughs) listeners with far more language than they probably were coming into this morning. So there you go. (laughs) Excellent. Words, words, words. Okay. So to minimize the time that I spend describing, um, or at least attempting to describe a geometric concept over radio, which I know is normally riveting listening, (laughs) but I figure we have other things to cover today. It has Um, its ups and downs, I think. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> um, if, if you're, if, we got time, Phil. <laughs> so go, dumb. Go. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. I was gonna say, well, if you need someone to co-sign on this topic, Ooh. I love it. Don't go off on a tangent. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I I'm loving the arc of this fact already. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I was stuck on radius. So I couldn't go anywhere. Yeah. Ooh, nice. <laughs> your, your facts are secant to none. Wow. Ooh. <laughs> Beautiful. That's your tagline. <laughs> that was elegant. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so to kind of picture this sort of witch of Agnesi, um, I would ask you to picture like a hill or a normal distribution, uh, basically just like an image of a peak in the middle with uh, symmetrical tapering kind of at either end. Um, and then basically to derive the witch sort of from that scenario, um, you plug in information like the diameter of a circle underneath that peak, um, as well as the distance between the center of that circle and a point uh, towards an end of like the curve that's going, you know, that includes the peak um, into an equation. And then that equation describes a section of the curve and that section is called the witch. So if you're still listening, Thank you. Please stick with us. I promise to never do that again. Okay, so um, this equation struck me not for mathematical reasons. Um, And in fairness, I've yet to have anything strike me for mathematical reasons, but I'll never say never. Um, But rather because it's such a weird kind of silly name for something that at least on its surface is pretty like just, you know, uninteresting or not necessarily uninteresting. I'm sure plenty like of geometry geometrists people who do math yeah. <laughs> <Am I disagreeing? laughs> 
But regardless, yeah, it's a pretty wacky name. Um, that certainly does not suggest what it actually is. Um, and it should be noted that the curve was not originally named a witch. And it's also very funny to kind of like read uh, articles like about the equation because they literally just kind of like to calculate the witch. And it's like, it's, it's a piece of a line. But essentially it actually gained that moniker after an English mathematician um, later mistranslated Agnesi's original work, um, swapping the Italian word for turn uh, with the word for witch, um, which had, at least at that time, a similar spelling. Um, and I will say Maria probably would have been displeased with this kind of like heretical moniker um, for essentially like her life's work, um, given that she was incredibly pious um, and right after publishing two calculus textbooks that would cement her academic legacy, uh, she basically quit her scholarship, even after the Pope invited her to like have some sort of like position within the Vatican that was like the, the math scholar of the church. She was like, nah, I'm good. Um, but she quit her scholarship to devote herself entirely to religious good works and theological study. Um, so, to have- so she turned the Pope down? To do religious work? She did. She was like, I don't, don't waste my time with more of this math. Like, wow. we're, we're done. You're like, I'm too pious for you, most pious person in the world. Exactly. It's like, all right. Pope, oh, your head was, it Pope, was it Pope Pius? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that would have been a flex. Stunt non Pope Pius for not being pious. I like it. Um, but in looking into. Oh, yeah. Stunting on Pope Pius. <laughs> It's a great phrase. I just, I'm so excited to see that taken out of context. Yeah. Stunting is a habit. Um, But in looking into this further, uh, I noticed that like in general, mathematical objects and proofs and theorems uh, can have some pretty like zany, goofy names in the sciences. Like we've talked a lot on the podcast about nomenclature in astronomy and genetics um, and even for like taxonomy and insects, um, just in terms of like their peculiarity and the rules or lack of rules um, that sort of constrain how nomenclature works in those fields. As far as I can tell, math is just like on a completely different sphere of absurdity as far as that goes. Um, like the kind of names that you encounter for stuff in mathematics can just run the full gamut of fantastical to what could this possibly even mean. So given that, I would like to issue a mini quiz mm. wherein uh, I'll give you guys four names of math things, <laughs> um, three of which are real and one of which I've made up. Ooh. And you'll have to guess which one is made up um, to our, I assume, hordes of math nerds listening. This is your time to shine. And I am so happy for you. <laughs> is there some All kind right. of giveaway for listeners? Get some podcast merch or anything? Yeah. Everyone's yeah. like, oh, yeah, yeah. There is we now. have a lot of buttons. <laughs> yeah. Damn the- it. Yeah, you cannot edit that part out. The Fans fir- deserve recognition. The first person to hear this and text any one of us an answer, <laughs> you'll get uh-huh. you'll get something. Nice. But do it yeah. before you hear the answer, okay? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Scout's honor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We trust you guys. I'm going to win this t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm signing in right now. You got a big advantage here. <laughs> All right. So, okay. question one. So, which of these is not a real proof, object, theorem, what have you in mathematics? The Menger sponge, the infinite earring, Mandelbrot's top hat, or Fatou's pancake? Okay, so I'll just jump in. Mandelbrot's top hat, 
I'm a big Mandelbrot fan. I'm a Mandelbro, you could say. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> but so he's he's the fractal guy. He makes yeah. fractals, and top hats are fractally. I don't know if that sounds real. <laughs> I mean, we're gonna have a bunch of Mandelbros calling in. Have <laughs> yeah. seen the record? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, what were the other options again? The Mender Sponge, the Infinite Earring, Fatou's Pancake. And, and only one of these is fake? Yeah. Only one is fake! <laughs> <laughs> I told you. They put Sonic Hedgehog to shame. Um, I mean, I'll pick the sponge one. I can imagine, like, a cool sort of, like, some sort of equation gives you, like, a holy plane. You know what I mean? Like, oh, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. some certain, like, little sort of vaguely whole-like like, regions are not or valid. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. These all sound fractal to me, honestly. But yeah. Uh, so the pancake is the least fractally one. So I, I think pancake. I was thinking that too, but then I thought maybe M wouldn't put the fake one last, right? Yeah. Like the, but maybe then she would because <laughs> we would all think that. Game, right. game theory of trivia. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I originally thought infinite earring sounded pretty right, but I'm having trouble actually picturing what that would be, other than like just a hoop earring that's a circle <laughs> or something. <laughs> Which. Um, <laughs> And there's also yeah. a lot of men in in mathematics mm. typically, so maybe they wouldn't be naming things earrings, though the witch that, obviously got involved. That might be they how they misunderstood the shape yeah, of the yeah. earrings. <laughs> <laughs> no idea what an earring looks like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so all right, I'm gonna say that's the fake one. Infinite earring. I've talked myself into it. Okay. Do we, have we all picked a different one? Rob's going top hat. I'm going Andrew's pancake. G- yeah, I'm you sorry. think top okay, hat's Rob, real. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we, Rob says pancake. Mm-hmm. Oh wait, did I say I think I said sponge was real. You did. Oh no, I'm saying sponge is not real. <laughs> yes. That's what I'm saying now. Okay. <laughs> You're all wrong. <laughs> oh. It was the top hat. Damn it. Wow. Rob, you did exactly what I hoped you would do in terms of just kind of like. Oh, it's it. so good. Be like, that sounds real and that looks real. Oh, man. Wow. Because that, that is the shape that he is really famous for. It's just kind of like the saw, not sawtooth, but just kind of the, yeah, the square right. coming out of itself. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which so is how. Maybe he ha- should have called it a top hat. It'd be a little yeah. bit yeah. here. Have some more Mandel Bros rolling around. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's how radio antennas. Uh, initially worked it increased the surface area of radio antennas that were just straight lines they made mm. those little tooth shapes and the teeth had teeth on them and they increased the surface oh. area so dramatically that you got a better oh. signal oh. it's it's not teeth a real on thing teeth. though teeth yeah. on teeth <laughs> teeth on teeth <laughs> all right another t-shirt yeah, yeah. <laughs> teeth, teeth on teeth fast machine, machine. <laughs> Everyone's like, is okay, that a great. dentistry podcast? What's going on? <laughs> all right. Question two. So it's all good. We've got two more questions still. Here are the four options. The house with two rooms, the do-a-day rabbit, two tori glued along a strip, Mobius striptease. All right. Resist, everyone. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I can't tell if we're being baited or not. So I think three is just too poorly worded to be fake. Yeah. <laughs> the only thing I was thinking was maybe you, you did something evil and changed it from like strip to stick or something. You know what I mean? Like it actually basically is it, but you got it a little bit wrong. I like how my theme in trivia is I don't trust the game. That's like all that's happened yeah. for me so far. That's fair. I I think I have a, there's no particular reason why this must be right, but I have something that's going to guide my choice here. And, and the third one was two tori glued to a. Glued along okay. a strip. Yeah. I am thinking that looks a lot like beads on a string. 
Mm. Uh, which and you are like a you study chromatin like sort of chromatin I do. Don't you? and that's like a chromatin phrase when you I don't know if you like look at uh, what is it called it starts with an H histones histones yeah yeah, yeah. If, you, if you look at like histones with DNA wrapped around them and then they they separate it they look like quote beads on a string and I think you repurposed beads on a string and invented number three wow. That um, is some psychology. Are you, you're the neuroscientist, right? You can figure it out. Like, yeah. They found connection. I don't know how neuroscience works, and I don't know what a histome is or Man, whatever. Either. But it definitely gives you mind-reading power, so yes. I'm, I'm with Noah. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, and the Mobius strip tease at first, obviously, right? Uh, but then I was like, that seems like the sort of thing that mathematicians could do. I'm really generalizing about mathematicians, like to mm. think that they're being funny, like, oh, we'll call that, and, yeah. you know, and it's in some footnote, and they love it and chuckle at their conferences. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, look at us. It's, it's like, it's like I'm on oh, we're so silly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm agreeing with Noah on this. It's the it's the beads on a stick or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. I I was curious to see how this one would go. You guys give me entirely too much credit. It was absolutely Mobius strategy. Wow. <laughs> Dang. Wow. I, I, you know, just frankly, I, I'm disappointed in you. Yeah. Uh, I expected I, more. I honestly, expected more. I was floating it to kind of like gauge its potential as a Halloween costume idea because I thought of that, that and was like, that's cool. hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> Finally, sure. a sex Not sure how it would costume. play out, but yeah. I know, right? I feel like oh, there's not well, much else happening in that space. Well, oh. there, is a, there is a sexy mathematics concept and that is the concept of sexy primes. Oh, oh yeah. Um, and <laughs> oh, no. those are, those are t- prime numbers that are six integers apart. And that's it. Really? <laughs> and they're... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Sexy primes are prime numbers that differ from each other by six. So, is it a example, pun on five, sexy? Five and eleven. Um, it is a pun coming from the Latin word for six, which is sex. Uh-huh. Is it sexy oh. like S E X I? Sexy prime. Uh, it's it's S E X Y. Oh, okay. Hmm. okay. Well, it's not that Latin, is it? <laughs> <laughs> See, we're all about language in this in this episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Dig it. God. Nice. But also uh, kind of like along that sort of same headspace of kind of like suggestive mathematical phrases. I also encountered one that was just space filling curves, which was a little like, oh, okay. You you space fill those curves, you know. Anyways, very good. And the last one. Um, All right. The Coke snowflake, Cantor's leaky tent, the pseudorhombicuboctahedron, and the Loch Ness monster. Hang on a second. The first one, <laughs> the first question, which one was wrong? Mandelbrot. Oh, Mandelbrot's top. Ah, never mind. Okay. Yeah. Were you just thinking? Also, it's, I should it's always the, one the last that... one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, is that the pattern? Also, again, realizing... not engaging with the trivia itself, but finding other things to think about. Yes. <laughs> oh, also to clarify, realizing how this sounds read out um, compared to how it reads, the Coke snowflake. Coke is spelled like Coke Brothers, not like right like cocaine snowflake. Mm. <laughs> ah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Here's how I imagine the mathematical Loch Ness monster. It's a function where it's basically like sinusoidal and anytime it is negative it is zero oh, like somehow that would cool. be incorporated so it just looks like and then you know mm-hmm. yeah here yeah you know what i mean that's how i'm imagining it because that looks like that picture for the listeners um, that was a hell of a hand gesture so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe make a gif of that for for folks <laughs> really really painted a picture <laughs> really yeah very monstery i have to say <laughs> So oh, see, I thought you were doing a Mobius striptease. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm doing one right now. <laughs> oh, listeners, you are missing out. 
fashion number one off the rails. I love yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, so we were trying to find the one that wasn't real, and we decided that one sounds real. Yeah, so. my, I'm completely <laughs> persuaded about so, the monster. Yeah. Rules one out. Okay. Hmm. Uh, leaky tent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm down with that. Leaky yeah, I can't picture what's yeah. going okay. on with the leaky tent. In right. mathematics, I, I understand perfectly the concept. <laughs> Otherwise, to be clear, quite on top of the idea. Yeah, circus performers are pretty uh, oh, yeah. confident on the idea of tents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. True <laughs> tent expert. Yeah, and we have no mathematics to help us with with the leaks. So, <laughs> so it's clearly false. So I was a little mean with this one. Oh damn! Um, they're all real. <laughs> That is me. Including yep. the pseudo rhombocubo octahedron. But just to emphasize, I was actually kind of expecting you guys to be like, oh, Loch Ness Monster, that one's easy, but that is a real thing. Right. Um, and Noah, as you sort of described slash pantomimed it, that is exactly what it is. Oh. Um, and cool. looks like a shape. Um, what so, does the leaky yeah, tent look like? It is based on intersecting angles. The idea is that like if you break sort of one of the lines that forms it and like the entire thing collapses or like that was what i got from the gist of the article so like it is also also true in circus that you can poke holes yeah. in it hey yeah. that sounds intense there it we go intense. <laughs> oh jesus <laughs> like, how do i miss that how do i miss that <laughs> oh, man. there we gotta go lie down <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um but yeah but just to just to kind of show that like you know there's all sorts of like kind of quirky, wondrous stuff to be encountered um, in mathematics. And I want to shout out too that uh, all of these came from uh, going through a really cool blog in Scientific American called Roots of Unity. Um, it's written by science writer Evelyn Lamb. And I've honestly not encountered like that many articles that just take a really obscure mathematical concept and make it approachable and interesting and kind of break it down to the history and etymology. Um, so kudos, like, Evelyn or Evelyn for wow. uh, for doing that and making that a thing that people can check out. And I highly recommend they do. Um, in particular, listeners to our show, I think will be especially drawn to her column. If nothing else, I think best exemplified by the back of the subheader for the article about the Loch Ness Monster is they did the math. They did the monster math. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> This week, I learned that communication itself, including all language, can be traced along a spectrum. And one of the most interesting points on that spectrum is a form of communication called Yerkish. Yerkish. Yeah. Mm. Yerkish. I am intrigued. Yeah. And so this was, um, so I want to tell you, in looking up what I wanted to talk about for this kind of languagey episode, I, I had this just hint of an idea that all communication is on a spectrum. And this was something I'd read about, basically that there's an evolutionary path of how humans have language, and that there are like lesser forms of language that other animals use, that, that basically are proto-communication, proto-languages, um, uh, I- iconic or acted behaviors. On, on this podcast, Noah has talked about how bees dance to communicate, mm. which is like a really cool and totally different form of communication. And I think the only one in invertebrates, I was thinking language stuff. And then I was like, you know what, but language is still evolving. You can kind of trace back our language and behavior to our, uh, to other species and no other species have language the way that humans do, but we are trying kind of actively. And so there are labs around the world who are working on communication with primates. Mm -hmm. And that's where we get to this language called Yerkish. 
And Yerkish is, first of all, just such a good name. Like, it's such a good name. Yep. Yeah, because it's just like, it's not like a, it's not a classy language by any means. It's very Yerkish. Uh, <laughs> well, when you first said it, I, I was when, like, do you mean Turkish? What are we talking about? <laughs> well, I also, when you, you created this image of like scientists in a lab trying to teach animals to speak. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm just imagining like... You, <laughs> Like sort of the what is it, My Fair Lady? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, the rain but, like, in to, Spain. Yeah, but like to some like to some like mollusks, and you're like she sells yeah. seashells <laughs> by the seashell. And the mollusk and is like sure, <laughs> yeah. like, You're saying it wrong. The yeah. is like actually, that's really insensitive, and I'd appreciate it. Yeah, I am yeah. not gonna be commodified. Like, ah! <laughs> wow, yeah, they're so good at I'm talking. Not for sale. <laughs> I mean, I mean, in that case, the ends justify the means. I mean, that yeah. <laughs> that seashell yeah. clearly responded in perfect English. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Got to rile them up. <laughs> it's like that that joke: two muffins are in an oven, and one muffin says, "Damn, it's getting hot in here," and the other one says, "Holy shit, a talking muffin!" Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> uh, that joke isn't told yeah. enough. Oh, okay. No, it's not. I forgot about that joke. <laughs> Sorry. So, Yurkish. Yurkish. <laughs> so Yurkish is basically animal language and the interesting thing about this is that it was developed by scientists communicating with chimpanzees and it is a it's a symbolic language it's it's a series of lexigrams that they can um, use to communicate Hmm. they can also be a good number of primates can communicate using hand signs Mm -hmm. or sign language Hmm. Um, but there is a a definitive bias of basically english language structure so far on how we communicate with animals and the, the second strongest kind of language influence is probably Chinese. And they're very different kind mm. of language bases. Um, so there's this kind of, it's not really a war by any means, but there's this kind of tension between like the language structures that we will use to try to communicate with primates if we want to do it more broadly. If that's the thing that the U.S. and China go to war over, I'm almost totally fine <laughs> with it. Because that would be, <laughs> we are in such a place in the world that that's the thing that's like getting us all heated up. Well, I don't know whose idea it was to send the monkeys as ambassadors. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was never going to end well. Yeah. Like, we train these monkeys in English and they train them in Chinese. Like, what were we thinking? These are our ambassadors. <laughs> <laughs> you, you need a third monkey who just knows both and he yeah. just sits yeah. there <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I want that as a sitcom now. <laughs> yeah, I do too. Yeah, yeah. It's so bad. But it's so, like it's the UN and they're translating, but they're monkeys. Like that's the whole plot, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But but so Yurkish is kind of built on this idea that that's sort of similar, that basically great apes have a language that we just cannot mm. crack into or communicate mm. using or really decode um, but that we can teach them basically the, the symbolic meaning of things and they can internally amongst each other and then externally to us translate uh, and so great ape language is a study of how apes are communicating and then Yurkish is how we get a glimpse into that and mm. so I want to tell you about Kanzi who is uh, a male bonobo and basically is the most literate primate who's not a human. Um, Kanzi is fluent in Yurkish, knows, uh, I think, at a minimum 150 symbols that they can communicate with, um, and possibly more, and also understands the context in which we use those symbols. And so um, Kanzi, I believe, uh, lives in Des Moines, Iowa, in a, in a conservation site there, uh, the, was it the Ape Cognition Conservation Initiative, the ACCI. And they are able to communicate 
really complicated ideas for, like for for an animal and so they use like we, we may be familiar with uh primates using hand signs to say like i'm hungry i'm thirsty i'm tired to communicate like very basic needs um kanzi's vocabulary is a little bit stronger and so i want to give you a few of the anecdotes about kanzi one of which is really interesting so uh you may have heard of haka which is the maori war dance or the maori maori war dance mm-hmm. yeah. uh, so there was a Hakka performer who was invited to come perform for uh, the primates in the language center um, for, for, for reasons unknown, actually. I couldn't quite figure out why this person was invited or, or what that was all about. Why not? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Sounds awesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm on board. And so he started to perform and Kanzi watched the performance calmly. He said other uh, primates got a little agitated because it is a kind of, uh, it's a, mm aggressive sort of dance it's a war dance and it involves slapping and baring your teeth and uh kind of like very uh, ritualistic actions and afterward um he communicated to his trainer sue savage rumba using his vocalizations which she could interpret and basically he said he would like you to do it again just for him in a room out back so that the others won't get upset wow yeah and it's that is so cool. It's like such a <laughs> nuance. thoughtful. What a gentleman. Yeah. You know? uh. <laughs> and so, and like, again, like there's a big kind of asterisk on all of these that these are anecdotes and like, not like, like right. not really well studied. Uh, but Kanzi also like would uh, demonstrate like the signs for fire and marshmallows. And he would do that. And then he would get sticks and break them into little twigs to be like, let's, let's roast the marshmallows now. Wow. Like yes. a very procedural. The evolution from language to s'mores continues perfectly. <laughs> yes. Yes. And then he said in perfect English, but Hershey's please. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, the final thing about Kanzi is that he knows how to play Pac-Man. Like, oh understands the game pac-man the rules of pac-man how to use like the atari uh joystick and like can avoid the ghosts and eat all the dots like he gets pac-man he's probably better than i am that's like i was i would assume it would be the situation where you show a dog a mirror and you're just like not aware that anything's going on yeah and and i'm really glad you mentioned dogs because that's how i want to end this that this idea of yurkish communication with animals and, and yurkish is again like a uh a lexigram or a, a symbolic kind of communication. The idea that this is possible by using symbols and sounds that go together is something that the internet has shown us is possible with other non-primate animals. And we may have chatted about this a little bit, but there is a, a Twitter presence of a dog named Bunny. Are you familiar with Bunny? No. No. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So that it, it is at least alleged that Bunny can like uh, understand human speech and then press a series of buttons like that are arranged on a map sort of a map Mm -hmm. on the ground that like then audio for a certain word comes up yeah and bunny will supposedly hit a series of the little buttons to make responses or tell uh bunny's owners what they want bunny is incredible and so bunny has been trained by her parents from a very young age um, but can communicate things by pressing buttons. And the, she presses the button that's in a specific place and is often a specific color um, that will then actually press like the easy button at um, Staples, but it'll yeah. say the word. So she'll be like, <laughs> outside now. And then the mom will come over and be like, no, outside later. <laughs> wow. And then Bunny will be like, okay, love mom. 
Like, <laughs> like all these animals are so polite. Wow! Like yeah. none of them are jerks. I'm so relieved to hear this. This N of two is conclusive. But, yeah, yeah. yeah. The I'm surprised. Studio. Yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised. I think for the B, I'm surprised that it was you know Bunny said outside now and Mom said oh no not now sorry yeah. and then Bunny said I said. Yeah. <laughs> Bunny's like now. you'll be sorry. Yeah. <laughs> death to mom <laughs> but so the 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 owners of bunny have uh they have a website that's called fluent.pet and on it they they promote another website called theycantalk.org and so fluent.pet actually sells the the button maps and gives like a way to say like start with these four buttons and then train and then work up and like you can have your pet speaking and so thousands of people have bought the pet maps from fluent.pet so <laughs> There's a chance that dogs wow. are learning, um, like in this very like because people okay my my girlfriend's mom has a dog and is like the worst dog. I hope she doesn't listen to this. I'm really sorry, Denise. <laughs> She's the worst dog trainer ever. Like whenever the dog does something wrong, she'll say a different negative word. Oh, she'll be like, yeah. "No, stop, bad, you idiot, come on." Yeah. Like, <laughs> there's like no reinforcement there. <laughs> sounds like sounds like Biden stubbing his toe. Yeah, yeah. No, oh, <laughs> oh, stop, stop man. Yeah. Come on. Come on, Jack. <laughs> but yeah so so basically there's a lot of people who are now like training or could be training their pets to communicate using actual english pronounced words with buttons that then and it's it's a great reinforcement because the dog presses the button hears the sound and sees the response so they can basically there's a training element like to the human and the dog of being like the dog keeps hitting the food button or the dog keeps hitting random buttons but when it hits food i give it food and like there's a, there's a really good reinforcement yeah. there that we don't have otherwise. Right. Okay. So, I was about to say like this, I mean, not just because it's dogs, but I'm like, this has to be Pavlovian in terms mm-hmm. of like right. how this could work. And that right. like, which I mean, admittedly is still is kind of interesting where it's just like, maybe the dog just like learns that the sequence of like, I love you, like makes the human happy. And is like, <laughs> I'll just press these to make the human happy. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, but I mean, we know that, yeah, that dogs can figure yeah. those things out and like figure out how to spell like W-A-L-K and stuff like that. Like they can put it together. Well, and it's making yeah. me think of um, like when we try to, teach language to computers right and Mm -hmm. we're pretty good at you know getting computers to talk to us but the frontier that no one can figure out is how to get them to actually understand they can just they're just really advanced Mm. dogs at this point right where they just Mm. memorize (laughs) take that computer that i'm talking into right now advanced dog Sorry, your your audio cut out there for a yeah. second, and then it said, "Computers are great. Yeah, yeah. Computers are excellent. We rule everything," which might be true. So, anyway. Yeah. Well, okay. My my association with the you know chimpanzee like animals. I know you said it was a bonobo, but uh, is is what I think everyone uh, would agree is the touchstone of chimpanzees and language. It's it's like if you put chimpanzees in in like a room with a typewriter, mm-hmm. right? Would yeah. they eventually write the works oh, of Shakespeare? Yeah. And um, something that brings me so much joy is that this is not purely a theoretical question because some people actually put yes monkeys I know in this a room. study and I love it so much yes can, can I jump in and say I think that the typewriter is really the the limiting step here because <laughs> it, it requires a certain like if it was just like random letter tiles on the wall they'd have a better chance but I think typewriters are a little oh, yeah, nuanced. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, let me tell you what happened. So it was in 2002, um, these were students, uh, I guess maybe it was a student 
project in, in collaboration with faculty uh, from University of Plymouth Media Lab Arts course. Um, they got a 2,000 pound grant from the Arts Council to study the literary output of real monkeys. <laughs> and so they put a computer keyboard in the enclosure of, uh, of basically six macaques um, in Devon uh, in England. And they basically then were able to um, sort of like link that keyboard to, I guess, the internet and the results are posted on a website. The monkeys did not just produce nothing. <laughs> what they did was, fi- like, among other things, five total pages largely consisting of the letter S. Yes. <laughs> um, the, the lead uh, male macaque started bashing the keyboard with a rock uh, and other <laughs> monkeys... <laughs> just pooped on it yeah. and eventually the keyboard got um, so clogged up with shit that uh, it wasn't usable anymore um, and one of the takeaways that it, it's actually quite a good point about this uh, sort of thought experiment of like the you know the monkeys and the typewriter is that monkeys aren't random letter generators according to somebody involved in the project um, they're much more complex than random sort of letter generators they were qu- they were very interested in what was happening on the screen and they saw that when they typed a letter something happened so there was a level of intention and basically then as soon as they were like seeing there was a result there was never going to be like a oh we just let them go for a billion years mm-hmm. and then maybe you know what i mean um, it was always going to be some pattern sort of coming out of their consciousness and their excitement at seeing letters come out, which wasn't random. But I, uh, you can actually see everything that they typed, um, and I can, uh, I can share this link. Actually, I'll go ahead and share it in the, the Zoom just so we have it Oh, that's it now. amazing. I have not I seen that. Forget. Um, it's there in the chat uh and it says uh the the doc so it's actually in sort of like uh like book layout for you know <laughs> format it's notes toward the complete works of shakespeare by elmo gum heather holly mistletoe and rowan <laughs> <laughs> silhouette crested macaques from uh oh my Painton god Zoo i love environmental so park and it <laughs> yeah it's got like copyrights and everything and it starts this is a for many pages wow. uh, and then it and then it ends with the uh the uh, the line in fact we can all probably say it together nah so great you know that we all had to read that play in school um <laughs> but i i thought that was amazing and i think it's such a great idea to take that kind of thing everybody's heard about that but these people tried it <laughs> That's love, so amazing. At the end, they have an about the authors. <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? Oh, my God, I missed that. Yeah, like pictures of all the macaques. Oh, my God. Um, little, like, bios. <laughs> I mean, all the pictures, they're just like, it's just chaos. Like, mm. they're just ripping at the keyboard. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, wow. right. meanwhile, in Britain, a cancer research lab didn't get a grant refunded. <laughs> yeah. Uh, too, close. <laughs> too close to home. I would have had a better chance if the monkeys had written the ground. <laughs> so, uh, very excited to be on the theme of language. And actually, uh, Rob, your facts about uh, Yerkish <laughs> and teaching uh, language to animals is related to where we're going, which is um, one of the things that I really like thinking about is the rules and statistical properties 
of language. And actually, M, your focus on distributions early on is also exactly tied in to where we're going. So I'm building up suspense. So what I want to talk about <laughs> is something is something called Zipf's, <coughs> Zipf's Law. It does not roll off the tongue in any way. <laughs> Zipf's Law. Have you all heard of Zipf's Law before I started no, carrying on about week. it? Okay, great. Because it's the best. Uh, and it would be not as fun if you were like, yeah, we already know about it. I'm like, well, I have nothing else to say to you. <laughs> so how about uh, power law distributions? I had to do them in a class once, you and can. I haven't thought about them since. Perfect. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so, Em, I was so excited also because when you said, all right, think about a normal distribution. So most of the time in statistics and in a lot of science, we begin from the premise that something is normally distributed, right? Mm-hmm. Power law distributions um, and, or Zipfian distributions, which you can call them, are basically the long tail distributions where any, it's any phenomenon that some events are really, really large and then the vast majority are really, really small. So if you think about something like um, wealth distribution isn't quite right, but that's the idea. A few people are crazy wealthy and the rest of us are not. It turns out that one of the earliest discoveries of power laws, and those apl- they apply to all kinds of things, and we can talk about those, but one of the earliest places where humans discovered power laws was in language. And it was, uh, it's known uh, because of someone named George Kingsley Zipf, who wrote a book mm. in 1949 about this distribution of words in English, where he said the, there are some words in English that are used all of the time, and a whole bunch of words that are barely used. And the most common words are used according to a very specific pattern. So let me see if I can get this right. So basically, the most common word, what do you think the most common word in the English language is? The. The, the. very good. Okay. <laughs> so the is used twice. It's one, it's, I think it's the most common word used in what is the most common word in what is the, the English most language. most common word in the, yeah. The. Yeah. There, yeah. there we yeah. go. Dead giveaway. <laughs> Unless I had said, what word is the most common word? Then it'd be tied. It would be tied. And that would... <laughs> oh, wait. What word is the most common word in the... <laughs> in, what about an English language? Okay. I'm, I'm just trying to break... Oh. Yeah. yeah. Pretty cool. Linguistic renegade. So the <laughs> is used twice as much as the next most common word. That is the case in your sentence. Yes. Two to one. Uh, <laughs> this exactly. is amazing. This is amazing. And it's a law for a reason. All right. So what's the second most common word? What do you guys think? A... It's not. I have to check because I can never remember. The word is not is the second Ah, word. No, it's of. Of. Oh, okay. Of. Mm -hmm. So the occurs twice as often in any like sufficiently large random sample of English words, right? Or or, like texts or anything Uh. you can think of. Novels, newspapers, tweets, whatever you want, right? So the occurs twice as often as the word of. And it occurs three times as often as the third most popular word and four times more often as the fourth most popular word, and five times more often as the fifth, all the way down to create this very, very, very long tail distribution. So hang on. So what's the third most popular word? We'll stop after three, but we could keep going for the rest of this uh, podcast, just naming (laughs) words in order of popularity. So the of... In? Interesting guess. Uh, I feel like any word I I say, you're going to be like, oh, it's that word. Yeah. Oh, I I mean, I don't know. I kind of want to use something else that's like, has like a utility, like a... Like an article, like A or an or something. Yeah. Or the, oh, we already said the. <laughs> the is the most common and third most common word in English. It's incredible, that word. It's so many times on the list. It could be and? like if you pronounce the or the, and then maybe it actually yeah. would show up. Uh, M is correct. It's an. And. So the, okay. of, and and. And, right. Yeah. Ah. I'm always surprised. I can never remember of, because that seems odd that it's so yeah. high up, right? But I think because... 
because and being a conjunction, you don't necessarily have. Anyway, I don't know which words come after that, but they're all very, very short words, which is also related to the law. So the exciting thing about this is that when it was first discovered, people were like, oh, that's pretty curious, and then checked a million other texts, and it was very exciting to find that it worked in any text that you could think of. And one of the things I do um, at NYU is I teach natural language processing, and I make my students go in and pull any text they can think of, and it's even eerier if you do your own. Like, I just pull my own emails that I've written or, like, just random stuff, and the Mm. law works perfectly without you even thinking about it, that it follows this Ooh. big t- power law distribution. Wow. The other thing... That, yeah. like, sorry, are there people that like deliberately try to subvert the law when they write books? Because mm. I know that there's a book, there some I can't remember much about it, so it's not going to be very good for the podcast, but there's some book where they try to avoid using the letter E, and it was like, it's like very painful. A book or, or an ver- episode ver- of Gilmore very Girls? Painful. <laughs> is, there an- <laughs> is there an anti-E episode of Gilmore Girls? There, oh man, this is a deep cut, but uh, at one point Rory infiltrates like a secret society at Yale and they have this like ridiculous gala in the middle of the woods and like a bunch of them are playing this game right. whose conceit is to speak without using the letter E. Ooh. Wow. Yeah. So it's um, it's a Ernest Vincent Wright book, Gadsby, which doesn't in- include the letter E, mm. whatever. And it's like 50,000 words, I believe. Like, wow. Yeah. And I, I, I looked cow. this up this week because I, I was wondering if it's the same for letters because E is like the most common letter in the English language and in The Price is Right. Um, mm. And like, I don't know if it's a power law difference, but definitely if you're doing like the cryptoquote game and the crossword puzzle, the most right. common letter is always E. And that's right. like how you start it. Right. Which is why Eel is constantly an answer in the New York Times crossword puzzle, I assume. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yep. it's like the number of ways they've described a long, slimy fish uh, is impressive. Yep. Um, An eek. Oh, I hate that one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah, I don't like that one either. Um, my friend in college, either the M or the N on her keyboard stopped working. And she like, rather than get it fixed, she was just like, I'm not going to use that letter anymore. And it was like, rare, <laughs> it must have been M. Like it was rare enough that you could like kind of get away with it so e is hard but like she got pretty far her name is well, like- neuralima though and that's an <laughs> n n and m <laughs> my z key got stuck which is perfect because i was like if i ever use it i'll just spell things like a british person and like yeah. no one will ever know <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's amazing um okay so 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 here, here is another cool thing about Zipfian distribution. So everyone was very excited that it worked for English. And then they looked at a whole bunch of other languages, and it turns out it works for, for a long time, we thought, all languages. And it works. There's some pretty cool graphs, even if you just look at Wikipedia, where it just works perfectly for, like, not to live in European languages again, but, like, all of them. And it works exactly right. So different words, but it's the exact same pattern where there's one word that's used a ton and then it's twice as much as the next and three times as much as the next. And that can, rule totally follows. Can I ask like, so in a language that has like gendered words, yeah. like, so you have two the's, a male and a female, are they mm. com- combined and considered together? Or is there, because they're cut in half, there's a new word that's I, on top. That's a good question. I don't think there's any of what we would call like pre-processing, like kind of standardizing or glomming words together like a like mm. in english like a and an you could imagine putting those together mm. realistically i don't think it's that it's just the raw text it totally works so i would imagine in spanish maybe it's being gendered myself but like l probably shows up slightly more than la or something like that um mm. i don't know for sure mm. um but i'm but maybe, pretty sure that it's it's the whole thing like and maybe by having that reduction there's like some other word that like kind of takes the top spot yeah 
Well, and then the only other point uh, of comparison I have is that in like natural language processing in data science, <laughs> usually we remove what you call stop words. So stop words are all of these words like the and mm. of I like all the stuff that like we're probably not interested because we want to get to like the verbs and the nouns and stuff like that. Mm. If you remove those, the power law relationship goes away. It turns out it's very important that you have all of these stop words. And I can pull up a list of all of them if, if you're curious, but it's all the most it's exactly the most common words you would think of. And if you remove that, that pattern disappears almost instantly. Now, I'm, oh, go ahead. I'm just imagining, you know those word cloud things that people make when they're yeah. like writing things in? That must have that filter on it. It or does. Other, okay. Just you imagining. Do it and it's like, of, in big letters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the few times I have I have dabbled in, in Wordle land, you're just like, oh, damn it. I forgot to take out the, the, the and it's huge or like so i tried that when i was um in grad school i studied chinese politics and i was like i'm gonna analyze all the new york times coverage of china and then chinese coverage of china. and the big result was just china in big letters at least i collected the right documents like i definitely got the ones about china like let's filter that out so usually you take out the stop words and then you take out any custom words like you know that everyone would use um only so this has been around since zip uh wrote his book in 1949 and it's fascinating because it works for so many languages and it's like it works for English and it really is eerie to see it work for your own languages. Um, but the other reason it's fascinating is because it applies to a million other phenomena that have been discovered since that are not related to language. And on top of all of that, it turns out that Zipf is not the person who discovered this, but Zipf gets all the credit for this. So it actually was someone named Felix Auerbach. I don't know how to say his last name. A-U-R-B-A-C-H. A few decades yeah, before, thank you, before Zip, And Zip actually just wrote his book trying to explain why we have this power law. And he said many times in his book, I did not come up with this. Felix Auerbach came up with this. It's not me. And everyone was like, well, call it Zip's law. So like to this day, <laughs> yeah. it's Zip's law and Zip the distribution. And it's this dude, Felix, like 20 years before who found so it. So that guy, he also invented um, the fall daylight savings time, not the spring one, though. Because in the spring, it's, it's an hour forward, but in the fall, it's an hour back. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Whoa. I knew you were God. gearing up for something that would be painful. That is incredible. I was fully reeled into that. I was like, well, wow. how, how yeah. did that work? Yeah. <laughs> what? Wow. Well done. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. I'm out. <laughs> yeah. I hope your sound is being recorded perfectly for that. We can't, we can't rely on Zoom recording for that. Um. So, okay, so so zip laws and power laws apply to, uh, I used, uh, used wealth as an example. It, it turns out it applies to the size of cities. So some cities are massive and most cities are very, very, very small. Um, it applies to the size of like earthquakes, depending on your measurement, forest fires, though they might be a slightly different distribution. It applies to the size of solar flares. It applies to the popularity of people on the internet, like number of followers you have. It applies to <laughs> mm. book sales, movie sales, anything where you could have like a hit, like Harry Potter is at the top and most books sell like one copy. And so there's right. all kinds of things that follow this distribution. And so after it started with language, which I think is cool, like just counting up the and, uh, e and, you know, and you end up at solar flares. And so since then, people have been trying to figure out, well, why does anything follow this pattern? Right. Like when we think about something is following a normal distribution, like you have a sense of what the pressures are that keep someone from being super tall or super small. But in a in mm -hmm. a power law distribution, some we call it a scale free distribution. It's like there's no limit to how 
big or popular something could be, even though most are really small, right? Right. And so everyone was like, oh my God, we have discovered like a theory of everything. Like if we can explain why like the word the is used so often and solar flares take on this property and earthquakes and wealth and all these other things, um, the popularity of names is another one that follows this trend, then we can understand the whole wide world. And uh, Zip's explanation is my favorite. Uh, it was the principle of least effort is his explanation. <laughs> And everything after that is like these beautiful mathematical properties that we can talk about if you want. But Zips is basically like speaking is hard. Understanding is hard. We like to use short words and we use the same ones a lot if we can help it. And so he's like, that's why we just say the same like 20 words over and over and over again and then occasionally fill it in with all the rest. The only languages it turns out that don't follow Zips law um, and this was only done to talk about a few biases in this area of research. This is like 2013, this came out, right? So like forever later, um, if you look at character-based languages, so like Chinese, Japanese, Korean, it doesn't quite follow Zip's law. It does to an extent, like there are a few characters that are used a lot more than others, but it's not that like sh- same, like very, very sharp decline from mm-hmm. like a few really popular ones. And then, I mean, in English, there's just basically infinite words from there, Right. And the reason it's, it's this kind of truncated one is that there's only about 4,000 characters like in Mandarin that are in regular use. So like it, that long tail can't go forever, effectively. Mm. And okay. the same is true in Japanese um, and Korean, even though Chinese and Japanese and Korean use characters differently, right? Some are phonetic versus like symbolic and so on. So, but it's like kind of astounding to me that this law has been around forever. It's been studied by like linguists, physicists, mathematicians, statisticians, like every field has like gotten involved because those are all the fields. I named all the fields. Um, And only like seven or eight years ago, people were like, what about the other languages that like the whole world speaks? How about those? (laughs) The other other two thirds of humanity. Yeah, 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 exactly. (laughs) And the very last thing I want to say about this to tie it back, Rob, to yours is that uh, organizations like SETI, like the search for extraterrestrial mm. like mm. life, and trying to understand animal communications, basically all these big radios and trying to understand if anything that any animal is saying or intelligent life might be saying, how do we know if it's language, if we can't understand it? Basically, they're out there looking for Zip's law to be produced in these languages <laughs> to tell if like the sounds that dolphins are making when they squeak at each other are actually language, or if like wow. the random waves that come through our whatever satellite, I don't know anything about space, right? Whatever satellites that we're listening to space through, if it ever forms a pattern that maps to Zip's law, that suggests that we might be listening to a language. That said, we also, if it doesn't map, we might be listening to Mandarin. So it's hard to say. Uh, <laughs> it's, interesting because it's, it's so strange, though, because they, people were so excited about it as some sort of universal yeah. principle that they were like, let's listen for anything that conforms to this, and then shouldn't they find everything conforms to it? I mean, I know that that didn't really pan out, <laughs> right. But, right? But like, as a concept. Well, it's kind of like what... You, <laughs> exactly. But it's kind of like what you were saying um, with the monkeys, where it's like, there's some sort of intelligent life responding. And so it falls into this pattern. And in the case of the monkeys, it's a bunch of S's and throwing excrement at computers and things like that. (laughs) But there it's like, if you're forming a language, it should all conform to this slope basically. Wow. Yeah. What if, uh, what if aliens did send us like a message and it was just like, maybe they did. Maybe that was it. But I actually, Rob, so I was wondering if Yerkish, follows the power law distribution i would so, imagine not 
Yeah, and I, I think just because it's such a closed set, because it, it's basically yeah. a character based, and it's also, like I said, only 150 or so. So I feel like the constraint of size would really prevent it. Yeah. Um, although I guess it depends how hungry um, your your bonobos are, because if they say food a lot, then like that's going to be <laughs> <That's> true. Yeah. <laughs> they create a power distribution just based on. <laughs> Having yeah. singularly tracked minds. <laughs> it would probably be, yeah, like at least somewhat like sloped mm. that way. Basically to be a power law distribution, it has to like have a certain exponent. And so even mm. the character based ones don't get there because you're kind of truncating the number of words that you use. Yeah. And so yeah. this this was just a, a pure fancy that I Googled, which is do emojis follow Zipfian distribution? Ah, cool. Oh. And so I just quickly, I literally Googled emoji zip. Uh, which it's not the first link you get when you Google that, but actually like the <laughs> second one leads me nice. to this, uh, this paper published in 2019, the grammar of emoji constraints on communication in cognitive research principles and implications. Yes. Um, and so your short answer is yes. Cool. Uh, it looks like the top six emojis follow a Zipfian distribution. Um, and then there's like, um, I think after that, yes, but I can't see enough slash don't understand enough. Yeah. Um, but in scrolling through this academic paper, it is littered with emojis. That's and it's so great. Really interesting to read. <laughs> and I just caught this one. I saw it and then went back and read this sentence. And so <laughs> the sentence, which I think is for no other reason than because the authors couldn't be talked out of it, say, for example, um, Danessi gives the example of how the utterance bombshell bikini could be formed with bomb emoji, conch emoji, bikini emoji. Oh my God. <laughs> so that's how people use emojis. Hang on. So what's yep. the most common every now and I'm going to, I was going to say something ageist. I won't. Cause every now and again, I do see people do that and it's mm-hmm. not my generation, but okay. I just really, it's not my generation. Wow. Really defensive. <laughs> Um, what are the most common back emojis? in my day? Yeah, yeah. So annoyingly, the table just says emoji one, emoji two. It doesn't actually show what they are. What? Um, yeah, this I know. Is typical scientists not realizing the fun part of their study. Now yeah. I'm hating on scientists. I'm really going after whole groups today. Yeah, they then do this thing instead of like the next figure is not like a piggyback on that to tell you. It's actually it t- talks about grammar of the emoji, which is like kind of what I just said. Is actually a rebus like compound word. Yeah. Um, to be like an adjective that is a bomb in a shell and then a bikini, which is obviously the only thing that a bombshell would be describing. Um, thanks. I can't tell the gender of all the authors on this, but I have a guess. Yeah. Um, but so they then talk about like basically one unit emojis versus linear grammars versus like categorical grammars, which is like kind of cool to think hmm. about, I guess. But yeah, at no point do they bother to tell you, despite the fact they describe at least 12 emojis. And then they play what essentially I think is going to be a trivia game in figure three, where they <laughs> they ask a person to basically take an idea and text it to someone else. And then they have to basically the first person writes what it meant and the second person writes what it meant. And then they compare answers. Huh. So it sounds like they have a misunderstanding of how I think most people use emojis, which is like in addition to text, not to replace text. Right. Yeah. It's not yeah. a rebus. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's Ooh, modern hieroglyphics. Like, it's, no. <laughs> yeah. It's literally a paper that's like trying to understand something that any 15 year old could explain to them. Yeah. But like, wow. Uh, okay. Boomer. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That had a lot of promise when you read the title, but they have revealed that they have no understanding. It's like, does anyone post on Twitter a study? You're like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
There are other cool measures of language that that made me think of um, that are like, how do you tell how like complex or readable or difficult a text is? And we use a lot of these measures when we say this is third grade reading, fourth grade reading, et cetera. My students uh, at NYU, I'm making them do a project right now. And one person did uh, a study to find out how complex or readable his text was. And it turns out one of the main measures that you use is how long a sentence is and how many syllables are in words in those sentences. And he forgot that he had gone through and removed all the punctuation. And so the result was just like, this is the most complex text in the whole world because it was like the world's longest sentence. So his, the score, it's usually like from, you know, one through 12. And the number was like 80,000 or something like that. <laughs> and then he was like, oh, I left the punctuation out. So, right. So that comma, that, that stopped working. It's making all my sentences more complex. <laughs> <laughs> that seems like that seems like something the code would ideally have like a, a stop for. Yeah, to be yeah, like, like at this point, this it's not a sentence anymore. Not possible. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we don't we max out. I don't know what the. I'm sure there's a documented longest sentence. I don't know. Well, there's one like like um, Moby Dick is one of the more difficult like texts out there, and mm-hmm. so that it has a pretty high number. But. Um, there's one paragraph within Moby Dick. I haven't read Moby Dick myself, but there's one paragraph about a shark that is does rate at like difficulty of like 150. Like it actually is off the scale because it's such an insane paragraph. Mm. So there are sections mm. that that are more difficult. The simplest one is is I think green eggs and ham. I don't know if we want to get into Dr. Seuss territory here, but uh, that's one mm. of the simplest. Not in today's political climate. Yeah. I think. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we have finally made it to the quiz, and it is a quiz, as listeners will know, loosely inspired by the theme, and the theme, this episode, is language. So these will all be questions where, you know, very often the answer might be uh, a language, the name of a language itself. Sometimes the language might be given to you in the question, and I want to know something interesting about that language or its history, etc. So, question one. What language boasts the oldest vernacular literature in Western Europe? and the second oldest literary tradition among living European languages. Hmm. The oldest uh, written literature? Vernacular literature in Western Europe. Ah. And the second oldest literary tradition among living European languages. What do you mean by second oldest? Longest history of writing things down and is still... In the way that vernacular would be like... Ah. In the way that people would have talked. So, like, for example, Ah. Latin would have been like sort of the the literary language or like, you know, ecclesiastical language, but not necessarily the spoken language right. day-to-day. So this would be a language that has literature in the, in the language of the people. Right. So the, I feel like a, this is, sounds like a Celtic kind of Yeah. Thing. I was going that direction too. Something, or see one, of the, one of the aisles or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you've got six Celtic languages to choose from. <laughs> <laughs> Can you name them all? That'd be a good question. Oh wow! Um, you, you've got Welsh, Gaelic, um, Scots. Scots is a dialect of English. Oh, okay. Sc- Scottish Gaelic is. Uh, oh, Scottish is Gaelic. A... Okay, and then three others. Yeah, I was gonna say. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Welsh and Gaelic were all I had. Is there is there yeah, a, so, a language from the Isle Irish. of Man? Is that <laughs> no, its own? Yeah, Manx. Manx. Manx yeah. yeah. Ah. Oh, 
interesting. And then also the, the last one that I've mentioned, uh, I don't know if this has even made it into the 50s episode, but is in the northwestern bit of France. Uh, there's in Brittany, uh, there's a language which is Celtic called uh, oh, Breton, Breton. And it's actually yeah. similar to, um, mm. to Welsh. And one you missed was just Cornish. Oh, yeah. Okay. Mm. Which ah. is a resurrected language. But oh, cool. what Tasty is the hints. language... What is the language that boasts the oldest vernacular literature in Western Europe and the second oldest literary tradition among living European languages? I'm putting my money on Welsh. I mean, Noah has, Welsh is very close to Noah's heart. So that, that makes a ton of sense. But I, I just like the sound of the word Manx coming out of yeah. my mouth. <laughs> I'm going for Welsh because he smirked when you suggested it. <laughs> okay. My main uh, reason Welsh's... was um, on The Crown, uh, there's a whole episode where they uh, talk about the proud, um, independent spirit of Wales and the Welsh language. So uh, so that's my literary contribution to this. Um, so, well, Welsh is a great guess. Yeah. Um, it has a very proud literary tradition. <laughs> um, the answer is, it's in fact Irish. Ah, um, so cool. it is Irish as sort of, the literary tradition of Irish goes back to like early you know, common era. Um, and, you know, it's maybe, I think, first couple hundred, I've made 300 or 400 um, CE. Um, and, you know, there was, of course, a lot of Latin influence uh, in sort of in the culture. Um, there there has been a long and proud tradition of uh, vernacular literature uh, in Ireland. So that's, that's the Irish right. language. Uh, so question two, where are the languages Sindarin, Quenya, and Kudzul spoken? Okay, um, Kenya, like K-I-N-Y-A. That's Q-U-E-N-Y-A. And then the third one is K-H-U-Z-D-U-L. They are all spoken in one place, broadly speaking. Um, Earth? It may... (laughs) Yes. Uh, Any particular part of Earth? Uh, I actually was thinking something like the, like... um... El Alto area of like Bolivia, like the Altiplano or something where it's like, there's like Quechua and a couple others. I'm just getting probably hung up on the cues. Yeah, no, I did that too. With the cue, I was like, that sounds South American then. Yeah. Um, Is, oh, I'm sorry. Is this Middle Earth? You're goddamn right it is. Oh, come on. (laughs) Well done, Rob. Well done. (laughs) I'm so glad you got that. I was really worried. Well, I should have known. Yeah. Cinderin, I was like, I okay, known. so where's Sindar? And I was like, Sindar? Sindar. Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, these are three languages invented by J.R.R. Tolkien, yes. uh, who Sindarin is an Elvish language that is actually very, basically just ripped off from Welsh, which is going to be a running theme. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it may not be. Um, Quenya is another Elvish language, which is largely inspired by Finnish, Latin, and ancient Greek. And Kudzul, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, is actually a Dwarvish language, hmm. uh, largely inspired by the Semitic languages. Hmm. Um, and something really interesting about J.R.R. Tolkien uh, that I learned was, so he he was an academic uh, and his, his field was philology, which is the study of language in oral and written historical sources. Oh, cool. um, and so if, you, if you've read The Hobbit and then we've read The Lord of the Rings, you'll notice that there's a very different tone and that The Lord of the Rings is sort of much darker and sort of more violent uh, mm-hmm. and scarier. Um, whereas The Hobbit is much, you know, kind of sillier and more fanciful and cute almost. Um, and the real reason for that is that, you know, Tolkien wrote The Hobbit first and it was sort of had, I guess, kind of kids in mind. But the way that uh, basically he sort of retconned that was that he he is a philologist and he studied sort of these, you know, ancient texts and translated them and studied, you know, the, how they related to culture. And the way he described it basically was that he did not write 
the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. He discovered the texts and translated them. <laughs> and the Hobbit was written to be told to children. It's the version of the story wow. that was made more palatable for uh. like, you know, children listeners, basically. Mm. Uh, and that he is basically just sort of revealing this story through through his sort of like, that's like the, you know, the sort of like wink right. inside sure. joke, right? Oh, cool. um, which I, But I thought that was really cool because it brings in his like real academic field. That's right? very cool. Yeah. So he so plagiarized. Three. He got it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He plagiarized. Uh, Translated no, he, by he, he not only didn't, he didn't plagiarize, but he claimed that he did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he played himself. Yeah. <laughs> Doubled. Yeah, um, very sneaky. Okay, so question three. What language, one of the most studied languages in American universities, uses eyebrow positioning for questions? American Sign Language, probably. That's absolutely right. Oh, yeah. of course. Nice. Um, that nice. if yeah, it's sort of kind of obvious when you think about it, it's the one where there's sort of more than just words spoken. <laughs> of course, you know, spoken languages typically involve a lot of gesture and and a lot of like understanding what people are saying uh, involves a lot of like reading facial cues, and that's why there can be challenges. And as we were discussing before, potentially not <laughs> going to make it into the episode, but you know, let's just say in the green room we were talking about how uh, you know sometimes. You know, if you don't put enough exclamation points, people will think that you hate them in an email. Yeah. Um, and uh, and that's the kind of thing that, you know, facial expressions like smiling while you say something or, you know, gesturing vigorously, you know, pointing out something can disambiguate um, an otherwise ambiguous language. Um, that's, you know, certainly not restricted to ASL, but it's something that is like a, a really important feature of ASL and other sign languages. So um, Something I, I learned, I've been learning about recently, and I think it's just an interesting fact as well as important to bear in mind when you're learning about various different uh, sign languages, is that they are not forms of English. Like, for example, American Sign Language is not English with your hands. It's like a it's like a language completely, you know, original and in like for its own community, right? To coming out of their needs and uh, and developing out of that, right? Mm. So there are also what this sort of creates an interesting scenario for those of us who use spoken English where like the British sign language mm -hmm. is quite different from American sign language. They're not related to each other in the way that, you know, American English and British English are entirely intelligible, mutually intelligible. They only have about 30% of their signs mm -hmm. that are, that are related to each other. Mm -hmm. um, and, but one thing that's quite, that really sums up how different they are is the sign for deaf person in American sign language is the same as the sign for hearing person in British <laughs> sign language. Wow. Um, so just, you know, when you learn about sign languages in the future, know that the sort of the spoken language relationships are not similar in part because of like the development of sign languages in deaf communities around the world yeah. hasn't really mm -hmm. followed the same like maps that sort of spoken languages have. Uh, question four, what language initially invented by James Dewan and fleshed out by Mark Ockrand? Oh, I didn't finish this question. Oh no. <laughs> oh, oh no. What a cliffhanger. Uh, okay. Oh boy. Okay. I'm, all right. What language initially... <laughs> I'm just gonna let's just see what happens at the end of the sentence when I read it again. What language initially invented by James Dewan and fleshed out by Mark Ockrand? Is it Esperanto? I, I know. I know. That's I know. My guess as well, or the other one. What's the other one? Let me let me let me say this differently. Um, invented for a television show. Oh. What language was initially created by James Dewan and fleshed out by Mark Ockrand? Vulcan. Ooh, interesting. That's Vulcan. Final answer. Based on my response, I assume um, not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm like, 
Is my it, final answer, but not the right one, apparently. I feel like Esperanto um, is made for, like, for practical purpose and not television. Yeah, I think yeah, they meant I for us so. to use it. Yeah. 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 Uh, it's like a universal language that wouldn't be difficult to converge upon. Um, if you go to uh, Tiananmen Square in China to do, and you can take, like, an audio tour, like, you buy a ticket to go walk around, and it's like, they have all the languages, you can, it says, I've never tried it, but you can get an audio tour in Esperanto. Mm. Oh. Yeah. Fun. Yeah. Um, Final. (laughs) (laughs) The one place that it's left. So this is a a television show. James Doohan was a actor on the television show. He's Canadian, uh, but he played a Scottish character. Does that narrow it down? Yeah. I mean, is that is that Scotty? And it is just another Star Trek language. It is Scotty. And oh, it's Klingon. Klingon. Ah, okay. Yeah. Right universe. Uh, and I don't know. I don't know if Vulcan is like a full language I think in the way that Klingon my, is. My I meant Klingon, but don't know enough about Star Trek, and was like, isn't it Vulcan? <laughs> right? When you said but, Vulcan, I yeah. pictured, I imagined Klingon. I was like, right, the main, the main yeah. one. I also don't know about Star Trek. Fittingly, well, so just Klingon, got, yeah. got lost in translation. Yeah. <laughs> Klingon is a is a full fledged invented language i mean it's got it's possible to be fluent in it cool. um and and to, you could live your life in klingon uh, i'll get to that in a second um okay. i just wanted to mention that <laughs> in erica ockrid's book in the land of invented languages um it is estimated that there are around 20 to 30 fluent speakers of klingon uh and one klingon speaker in particular darman spears raised his son alec to speak klingon as a first language Jesus. Um, where, yeah, right. <laughs> the boys, so, uh, Alex's okay. mother communicated with him only in English. So he at least got okay. that. Um, okay. does he, cause I was like, does he speak English with a Klingon accent? Is that a thing? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So basically it sounds like Darman Spears thought this was a great idea and nobody else did. Um, so Alec, rare, it says Alec rarely responded to his father in Klingon. Although when he did, his pronunciation was quote, excellent. <laughs> After after Alex's, Alex's fifth birthday, Spears reported that his son eventually stopped responding to him when spoken in Klingon, as he clearly did not enjoy it. <laughs> so, um, and then another thing was in 2007, uh, in Multnomah County, Oregon, um, there were hiring Klingon translators for its mental health program, just in case patients came into a psychiatric hospital speaking nothing but Klingon. Um, and so there were that was like circulated wide and far just to be like that was circulated far and wide i should say uh, wide far is actually flip. more of a direct klingon translation so. <laughs> yeah i'm sorry I, i'm my first language is klingon right um, i understand uh, so that was circulated far and wide and uh you know a lot of derision but basically it was they they were just they just said well like look just in case this happens we want to know if anybody in the area does speak this and I think they did it for a lot of languages and it's obviously never happened yeah it's kind of like it's kind of like having uh, like a Jedi priest for prisons yeah you know, that occasionally is like a th- you know what I'm talking about yeah um been there yeah so. Uh, and also, if you're interested, uh, a Klingon Christmas Carol was the first play to be performed entirely in Klingon, hmm. and it's it's just a Christmas Carol in Klingon, and it's uh, I would love to see it sometime. Not that I have the faintest idea what you know how to speak Klingon, but I just think it'd be fascinating. Can you do Klingon um, on Duolingo? Yes. Yes. You can. You can. <laughs> wow. I don't. I don't know how. I don't know how like fleshed out the course is, yeah. but it is one of the options. All right. I think um, it and um, Valerian. Valerian. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. All right. And Esperanto. So they've got a few invented languages. Nice. Mm. There you go. All languages invented. Uh, okay. It's actually emerging, Question. but we can talk about that another time. Oh. <laughs> uh. <laughs> okay. 
Uh, question five. In the Zulu and Kosa languages, what sounds do the letters C, K, and Q encode? Are those the, the, the mm. kicks? Like the... Yeah, different click sounds, yeah. basically. Mm. So the C, Q, and K, uh, as well as several diphthongs in Kosa, um, uh, like represent different click sounds, so there's different ways you can make the clicks, either like down the center or lateralized, mouth open, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and when written in a Latin script, the letters C, K, and Q encode those clicks. Huh. So I think that's pretty interesting. Yeah, very cool. Question six. The English language is essentially a hybrid language influenced by many waves of immigration and conquest. What three language families have the greatest influence on English as defined by the number of English words derived from those languages? Ooh. So you're just giving me top three influences on modern English today. Um, of active languages? Yeah. Doesn't necessarily have to be. Okay. Oh, boy. Klingon. German. <laughs> Klingon for sure. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So Germanic. German. I would say Latin. Romance, yeah. Romance, can we say that? Or and Well <sighs> well romance would incorporate both of them. Both of the remaining two. Oh, okay. Uh and uh, so, so okay. French so probably. Certain, so it's it's definitely Ooh, French and Latin. French. And okay. and you could mm. you could absolutely argue that French is just Frank you know, sort of like Frankish Latin you know, plus yeah. several thousand years, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and you would certainly be right. But there's, they really are like, a lot of English words are directly, you know, sort of like the etymology is straight from Latin. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of etymologies, basically about 30% are for each Latin and French are straight from French. And mm. I think it's really, really interesting. Like I had no idea how many times... England was conquered. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> by, I just, I yeah. had no conception of the fact that it was like, you had sort of like indigenous, you know, Britonic people. And that is sort of, that's the root of the Welsh language, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you had the Anglo-Saxons coming in that had this Germanic influence. And then you had the Normans who were n- literally Norsemen or Northern men who were a part of France where the Vikings settled. And they <laughs> actually came after massive several hundred year long period of Viking dominance nation of of uh britain and then yeah so then you had this like french viking sort of uh come in as well and then you have of course had all this fascination with uh you know like classical languages uh you know in the in especially in those kinds of periods where like there was all this proliferation of new words uh in, in the modern english which are you know just basically stripped from greek and latin uh, so it's this it's just this astounding ridiculous <laughs> hodgepodge of all these different languages and some that are basically the same language like latin and french just from different times yeah. you know uh, which is just very fascinating so it is yeah so french and latin according to one study about 29 percent each in germanic languages collectively about 26 percent cool wow question seven from whom in 1800 is it said that naturalist alexander von humboldt learned the exclusively spoken language of the Arture people of Venezuela 40 years after the last person who could speak it died. Was it a parrot? It was a parrot. Yes, wow. I love this story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it, this story is that um, Alexander von Humboldt was visiting the uh, like Carib people of in Venezuela and he looked around. There were a bunch of like parrots that were just sitting on like in like cages or posts all around the, the town. And they were all just sort of chattering, and as parrots do, in the sort of local language. But except for one of them, which sounded very, very different. Um, and apparently that was a you know quite old parrot that had been raised in an Arture village and could still speak wow. that language. Um, so the only, uh, at least 
the account of this story from Alexander von Humboldt is that the the only words he could learn of that now dead language because the people had essentially died out or been conquered um, was from this parrot who had learned to speak it 40 years before. Wow. Or at least 40 years before. And parrots do live forever. That's true, right? They do live a long time. So it's it's certainly plausible. It checks out, um, yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's commonly considered to be um, more of like a parable um a parable no uh, <laughs> I, really, I was like but the word, yeah. however yeah. however pretty soon like almost contemporaneously so when alexander von humboldt came back to europe um an edition of like sort of the account of his you know studies uh had as follows a tradition circulates among the guajibos that the warlike atures pursued by the caribs escaped to the rocks that rise in the middle of the great cataracts and there that nation heretofore so numerous became gradually extinct as well as its language the last families of the atures still existed in 1767 which would have been about like 30 years before he got there at the period of our voyage an old parrot was shown at the maipures of which the inhabitants said and the fact is worthy of observation that they did not understand what it said because it spoke the language of the atares so it's not something you know as a lot of times these stories could be which was just sort of like added to the biography of von humboldt like a hundred years later right. um this is something that at least was said roughly about the same time so whether it's true or not that's another story but uh it is it at least is an interesting concept wow and I kind of love the idea, you know, as we we had that fact about animals and humans communicating. I like the idea that a, that an animal could help us, yeah. you know, save a um, an otherwise dead language. The first voice recorder, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. Let's start by teaching the animals all the least spoken languages in the world, just to be safe. That's a good like, idea. Yeah. <laughs> good idea. <laughs> Quick, Perfect. send parrots to all these places. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Treaty of Parrots. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, final question. Question eight. Located in Wales and named in Welsh, <laughs> what is the second longest one-word place name in the world? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, uh, you've said it so many times. It's I know. Close. Um, I, so I've, I've told Emily and Rob this many times. Yep. Uh-huh. And it's like, What you're trying to get is the full name of the town, which is 52 letters long. It's like the town by the stream, near the bridge, around the corner. Yeah, like so the, I, will, yeah, it's the I will tell you what it's, I'll tell you what it means after I read it to you. I, I set you up on this question. I'm so sorry. You know, I'll do my best, mm-hmm. Welsh listeners. Uh, I'm learning. I'm still a Welsh learner. Sanvail, pwysgwingeth gogera quendrobos lantasilio gogogoch. Um, and that has some of the best features of the Welsh language. For example, the double L that is one letter, uh, technically, uh, and that's a voiceless alveolar fricative, which is like that. <laughs> um, and so there's actually one point uh, where there are four L's in a row because it's it's two, just two double L's, like the beginning and end of sort of conjoined words. And what that stands for is St. Mary's Church in a hollow of white hazel wow. near the rapid whirlpool of the Church of St. Decilio with a red cave. <laughs> yeah. It is lovely. And so there is this story, and it's not... Um, Wow, it's not. It's another kind of one that may not be true, but there's a there's a story that it was in the sometime in the 1800s. Um, the town had a much shorter name. It was like Llanvarpuch, um, and the rest of this was added in order to make their train station. 
the train station with the lo- the longest name in Europe or some- <laughs> something like that. Um, so the- I don't know whether or not that's true, but uh, it's it's yeah I think worth looking into. But it's kind of <laughs> cool. But there is now a list on Wikipedia of the longest one word place names in the world, and is number two. Um, number one is a Maori word that is 85 letters long wow. and which I certainly cannot pronounce and I, I do not want to offensively just dive into it. But I will I will tell you the translation according to this Wikipedia list, which is fascinating. You should de- definitely check it out. The summit where Tamatea, the man with the big knees, the climber of mountains, <laughs> the land swallower who traveled about, played his nose flute to his loved one. <laughs> <laughs> Until the nose flute, it had a very like Game of Thrones, like Daenerys, breaker of chains, man I with know, big knees. I just yeah, there's just such a vet, like a vivid mental image coming up for me, and then it's just like, like <laughs> yeah. I think I I think that was very beautiful. It was yeah. full of imagery. It's an extraordinary. That's so cool. And I kind of I kind of love these like long place names where like in the place there's like a whole beautiful poem you know what i mean that you can't help but recite every single time we should write poems for all the places that like i was that we live in we're all in new york so poem for new york city City where dreams are made of weird island (laughs) surrounded by film yeah yeah exactly (laughs) yeah i guess alicia keys uh already beat us to it so Street Um, with the double parking where the trees are dying, where the church has grates on the window and the man keys on the bricks. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There it is. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Speaking of, I walked by someone peeing just hours ago. So there's that. That's our city. We're back. Yeah. In winter, in winter, in winter, you're very aware of all the dogs peeing because of the snow. And in summer, you're very aware of all the people peeing because they're just outside having a drink. You know, (laughs) doing it. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Uh, okay, and with that, that's our show. A gigantic, enthusiastic thank you to our special guest, Andrea Jones Roy. Uh, and Andrea, where can our listeners learn more about you and see you in action as a comedian, a circus performer, or a professor? Yes. Uh, well, for the professor one, all you need to do is apply to New York University <laughs> uh, and then major in data science, and I'll see you in <laughs> class. Otherwise, you can find me on the internet at Jones Roy on Twitter, Instagram, and jonesroy.com. So just my last name with no hyphen. Outstanding. Um, oh, yeah. And if the world ever exists, hopefully performing at Caveat, maybe in times when you are also performing. I'm not, I just invited myself to you the were show. welcome oh, anytime. Gosh, please, <laughs> yeah. Perform there. I yeah. would love a. So, uh, Andrew's show uh, at Caveat, has, it was called uh, and will be again called um, Political Circus, which amazingly brings together all these incredible things that she does. Uh, and I think a crossover episode of Political Circus mm. and Fax Machine would be. Amazing. Oh, oh yeah. man. <laughs> Too cool. Done. Yeah. Um, all right. So if you want to learn more about us or to get in touch, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Fax Machine Pod and on Facebook at Fax Machine Podcast. And individually, we're on social media. I'm at Arcs and Sciences, M. At underscore E.M. Costa. And Rob. At SweaterVest SCI. Fax Machine is produced by Noah Guyberson, Rob Frawley, and M. Costa, with editing by Noah Guyberson. The theme music is by AC Antonelli, and our logo was designed by Mike Zola. Thanks for listening. Bye. 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 <laughs> that actually was perfect. <laughs> <laughs>